We started a series last week, uh, essentially, that's dealing with money. Um, and let me kind of tell you why, because what I find is that when it comes to God and when it comes to money, um, there are so many misperceptions. There's so many thoughts about what God says, or what God wants, or how God feels. And for us, the problem is, is God has some extraordinary wisdom to share with us as it relates to us and our money in him. But again, the problem is, is that for many of us, we were never actually taught what God says. Or if you were, it was probably one of two messages. And the messages are essentially this. One is God doesn't want you to have any. In fact, God, if you have any, wants you to just give it all away, doesn't want you to have anything, wants you to essentially live in poverty. And that's what we call the poverty gospel, which is that God is in opposition to money, and so you shouldn't have any. If you have any, you should feel bad that you have any, and you should give it all away. The other one, which is just as dangerous, is, is the prosperity gospel. And that's essentially God wants you to have lots of and lots and lots and lots of money. And in fact, here's, here's what you, you know, may not know, that the better you obey God, the more you'll have. The better you, have, you know, obey God, the more you have. And the more faith you have, the more you'll have. And if you don't have much, and the problem is you don't have enough faith. <laughs> the problem is, Jesus at one point said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And so it really isn't about the measure of faith, but simply that you have faith. And as it relates to God, and as it relates to money, for many of us, we fall in one of those two camps. And so the church, oftentimes, because it's a very sensitive subject, doesn't talk about it. Now, let me put anybody's mind at ease who you know how this sermon goes, and I'm going to you know, talk, and then I'm going to say, you should you know, give us your money, and then at the end, we're going to pass a basket, and we're going to sing one more round of that hymn, and everybody's going to cry, and you're going to have nothing left in your bank account. Don't worry. Over the next couple of weeks, we are not going to talk about giving at all, okay? So if you're in here, and you're skeptical, and you're saying, I know where this is going, let me put you at ease. We are not at all talking about giving, not because giving is not important, but because there are so, many, so much more important things. And in fact, these are kind of the causes and the effects are giving. Now, again, depending on what church you were raised in and depending on what message you were told and how this was addressed, what many of us think about in our current stage of life is I'm going to be wise with my money once I get to the next step. I'm going to be wise with my money or I'm going to pay attention or I'm going to honor God with my possessions once I have more possessions. So once I graduate, I'm going to honor God. And then you graduate and you had a job and you say, okay, well, I'm single. And I told you this story about me from last year or a while ago, but when I was single and I was dating and I was engaged, making, you know, not that much, but I had literally almost no bills to pay. So I had like 30 grand worth of discretionary income. It's just like, hey, what steak restaurant do y'all want to go to tonight? Let's just go out and go ham. And my wife said to me, you know, don't you think we should save? And I said, no. And she said, why? And I said, I had the rest of my life to save. You know, when I have responsibilities, once I get to the point in life where, you know, people are dependent on me, then I'm going to be smart. But right now, come on, I'm single. I'm young. <laughs> I want to spend like I'm free. So let's just, you know, who, who wants what? Or, you know, you are in the stage of life where you have young kids <laughs> and, you know, nobody has money when they have young kids. Or then you they, you know, kind of get into elementary school and you think, okay, now maybe I'm going to be responsible. Or once they get to the next step, once they get out of college and then, you know, college isn't free. So, you know, once they get to this next stage, but all of us have this, have this deal that once I get to this stage, I will be wise with what I have. And the problem is, is that 
how we handle and how we think about money has nothing to do with the stage. It has nothing to do with one side. It has everything to do with our habits and with our perspective. It has nothing to do with stage of life. It has everything to do with our habits and our perspective. Now, now, this makes sense if you've ever played a sport, which I know many of you have. This makes sense if you've ever played a sport, you know that you practice like you play. You practice like you play. You practice like you play. If you practice with bad habits, if you practice with bad technique, then eventually when it comes game time and everything's on the line, you're not going to have good habits and good technique. You practice like you play. And what's interesting, again, is we all fall into this once I myth. And again, it's not that you're bad. It's not that you're wrong. The idea of this is to say, I can't believe you would spend your money like that. This is to say, we have all been there. We have all been there. We have all been there. And the problem is the church has done an extraordinary disservice in helping us to understand how we ought to view our resources. And if you were here last week, you, you, you were here for kind of the foundation of this whole series. And this is essentially what the foundation is. As soon as I start to think about it as my money, I've made the first mistake. If you're a Christian, and if you're on the periphery of Christianity, then we're going to talk to you in a little bit. But if you're a Christian, here's what we believe. That God has entrusted this to you. God has entrusted this to me, and it is not mine. It is only mine to manage. That I'm a manager, not an owner. I begin to think that because I worked hard, because I'm smart, because I had an education, that I earned what I have, and what I have is what I have. Would, you know, David would look to God and say, and he'd say, God, I'm not mistaken. Everything I have comes from your hand. Everything I am is because of who you've made me to be. And yeah, perhaps you have worked hard. And again, this is you know, kind of Christian specific. Maybe you have worked hard. Maybe you have outworked your peers. Maybe you are smarter. But here's what I would say. Who gave you the mind to think? Who gave you the intellect to analyze the way that you did? Who put you in the environment that created the work ethic that you have? That I have? That we have? Exactly. I could look at my life and say, yeah, of course, of course. Let me tell you a little about me. Many of you know this, some of you don't. I'm bivocational. I spend, well, I spend about half of my week doing uh, church stuff. And the other half of my week, I do, uh, I run our family's meat company, Register Smoked Pork Sausage. If you haven't eaten, you haven't lived yet. Okay, get saved, eat our sausage. That's kind of how the whole thing works. But the majority of my paycheck comes from registers. Now, in that, I could say, for my week, I, for the last several years, I don't even remember the last time I didn't, but for the last several years, my work week is a six-day work week. I, week. I work six days a week, every single week for as long, you know, for, for, for multiple years in a row now. But, but let me tell you about this. I could easily think that the reason that our church has been successful, that our meat company has been successful, that we have, you know, seen the gospel go forward and seen the sausage go forward alongside of it, you know, the reason that's happened is because I have worked so hard, but here's what I know. I am just lucky that God has given me both of these organizations to manage, and I ain't taking it, any of it with me. And it's only because I was born into a family who didn't give me a choice whether I was going to go to school and to go to college or not. It's only because I was a part and born into a culture in a country that for me, I had extraordinary opportunity. And I know for me, probably more than most. And I'm simply a manager of what God has entrusted 
me with. Now today, we're going to talk about the second part of this. And let me just preface, I think if you take and apply what we talk about, talked about last week, that we are managers, not owners. And if you take that mixed with what we're going to talk about today, frankly, whether or not you're a Christian, I think these principles have the potential to change the trajectory of your financial future. Now, to, to get into what we're going to talk about today, Paul uh, was writing a letter to Timothy. If you got your Bible, you, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but to kind of give you some context, if you don't know who Paul is, we're picking it up in the Bible kind of towards the end. Old Testament happened, Jesus came to the earth, beginning of the New Testament, lived a life, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, died, resurrected again. The story of the early church is recorded in Acts. But there was a guy named Paul, who actually at first was Saul. And Saul was the guy who hated the church, persecuted the church, was completely opposed to the church and to Jesus. And so Paul has an extraordinary experience where he all of a sudden becomes a Christian. And Paul had incredible ambition. I mean, you think you're ambitious. This is how ambitious Paul was. Paul went to the, the, the apostles, which we would think of as disciples. Jesus walked and talked with about 12. And at that point, all 12 weren't alive anymore. But at one point, Paul goes to the apostles and says, hey, you know, you guys take the, the Jews. In fact, you guys take all the people in Jerusalem. And let me just tell you, you take them, you know, you guys, you 10, you 11 that are left. You take the ones who are here here in Jerusalem, and I am going to take the rest of the world. So you guys get your little, you know, Christian cubby. I'm taking the rest of the world on. and went all around the Mediterranean rim on a number of different trips and planted churches. An incredible ambition. And Paul, in the middle of this, would raise teachers. He would raise leaders. He would raise pastors. He would go to one place and then one place and then one place. And sometimes he would meet somebody and he would take them along for the journey. One of those people was a person named Timothy. And Timothy was Paul's disciple. And Paul, as he left Timothy in a place to go minister and to pastor, would write a letter to Timothy to say, Timothy, let me address some things that I'm seeing. Let me give you some additional instruction. In fact, more importantly, Timothy, there are going to be, as I'm telling you what to teach, there are going to be some people who come in and tell you and try to teach your people some different stuff. And so this is what I want you to know. Here's how I want you to identify them. In fact, if you, again, if you got your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to hop, hop in in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ... And the teaching that accords with godliness, here's what I want you to know about that person. He's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. <laughs> we read that and we think, okay, I know some people like that. Like, let me tell you about my Aunt Karen, okay? You talk about people that's just like, oh my gosh, they're puffed up, they're vain, they're conceited. They just want to debate, debate, debate. They love, you know, this conflict and controversy and they just want to be right. And for day, days on end, and maybe, you know, maybe for you it's not an aunt, somebody at your, at your office, you're not even thinking like in the church already, you're like, oh, I know some people like this. And here's how, if, if you were to kind of boil all that down, here's probably how we would describe them. They're selfish. They're selfish. They're self-seeking. 
They want to be great. They want to be right. They want to be known. And they want you to be wrong. They want to be great. They want to be right. They want to be known. And they want you to be wrong so that they can be better than you. In other words, there's something inside of them that's missing. There's something inside of them that craves, if I do this, if I get this, if I prove this, then perhaps I'll be satisfied. So he says, there's some, there's some folks as, as you're going around and teaching these truths. And here's, here's one more thing that you'll notice. Here's one more thing that you'll notice, especially in the religious world. He says, they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Says, and here's what you've seen. In fact, you, we've all seen this. Someone who takes godliness and leverages it for financial gain. And there's two different ways that this plays out, by the way. One is a leader takes godliness and says, give, 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 you know, do this, do that. And if you do this and do that, then God's going to give you and God's going to bless you and God's going to do all these extraordinary things for you. And so you should give to my ministry, AKA me, because daddy needs a new jet. Okay. And so you should just give, give, give so I can be rich, rich, rich. And let's be honest for some of you, you have seen this play out and this is why you don't like church. Cause they're these gigantic organizations that everybody gives to and nobody knows what happens with it. And so the assumption is, is the guy at the top gets it all. That's why I often honestly talk about me and the meat company. Because I want you to know, you ain't paying my bills. Now, now, now here's the truth. On the other side of it, some of us have been part of churches and traditions that said, again, if you obey, you should be like God because if you obey, God's going to give you more. God's going to do this in your life. You just name it and you just claim it and God's going to do it because you said it and you named it and you claimed it and you lived it and you said it, but God didn't do squat. And you got hurt by it. Now for us, this is so important. Because again, for some of you, you're on the periphery of church. You're just investigating this whole thing. You're trying to figure out what you think, what you believe in Jesus. And this whole idea of organized religion is just so difficult. Let me pause kind of from the sermon for a second and tell you something that we're uh, going to talk about more uh, in, in detail in a couple weeks. But we're launching in, in February this thing called Intro to DCC. To help you go, if you attend here, we believe everybody needs a place to belong. We want to give you the tools and the information to help you go from attending to belonging. We want to bridge that gap and do our part. In the first week, or in intro to DCC that leads into kind of a growth track model, we're going to talk all about that, what that means. The last section that we talk about, you know what we talk about? Leadership and finances. Leadership and finances. And this is so important to us to have, we want to be radically committed to transparency because if you think about every person that has ever been hurt by the church, there is a good, good, good chance. In fact, I would say probably a 99% chance that the person who has been hurt by the church was either hurt by a church leader or the way a church handled its money. So important. So we want to cover both of those things. 
So Paul looks at it and says, yeah, you've seen some teachers like this. You've seen some leaders like this, that it was all about this financial gain. It was all about this fiscal gain, whether it was their personal gain, or if you do this, God's going to promise this. And so you do this and God, you know, you felt like I promised this and nothing happened and you were hurt by it. He says, but in the next statement in verse six, let me contrast these two ideas, this one idea of selfishness. He says, but this, but godliness with contentment is gain. Godliness with contentment is gain. You know what contentment is? Contentment says, I have everything I need to be satisfied and I don't need more. I have everything I need to be satisfied and I don't need more. He says, so there's just one area that it needs more. It needs this thing. It needs this rightness. It needs this finance. It needs this thing. It needs this new. It needs this shiny. And without that, it's not content. He said, but come on, do you know this? The greatest gain is when you have godliness, but you are content and satisfied in what Jesus has and what you have in him. In fact, I want us to all repeat this because I think this is, this is this, again, this could change everything for you, okay? So in a second, I want you to repeat this. Godliness with contentment is great gain, okay? So let's say all say that together. One, two, three. Godliness with contentment is great. Very good. All right, we can do that one more time. Godliness with... Very good. Now, let me, let me show you a couple things that he's going to follow this up with and tell you why this is so important. Here's what, here's what he continues to say. He said, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. In other words, we came in with nothing and we are leaving with nothing, which many of us would say, I know that's true, but a jet ski would be pretty cool in between, right? I'm with you. Don't think God's in opposition to this. He says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content. Now, this is way before the hierarchy of needs was invented. In fact, here's, you know, we kind of keep finding this in, in different ways. Some of you guys are familiar if you, you know, studied economics and you've perhaps studied psychology. Um, Princeton did a study in, in the mid-2000s with an economist and a psychologist who both won Nobel Peace Prizes for this study. And here's what they found. They were studying the research between how much you make and how happy you are. How much you make and how happy you are. And here's what they found. Once a family makes $75,000... There is no increase, there is no measurable increase to making more and being more happy or being more content. Which some of us say, $75,000, are you kidding me? I am a social work major. I will never make that. Let me just tell you, you just marry another social work major and you got, y'all are good. Especially if you work for the state, you don't have to pay for insurance. Like you just made $100,000 because you don't have to pay for that. But, you know, the idea behind this, the, the idea behind this is they did this study and they said, okay, are you more happy? And they were, you know, it's, it's Princeton, so of course they're smart. But here's what they, they, they did as a side separate study. They said, okay, two questions. One, are you happier? Two, are you more satisfied with the progress that you've made with your life? And here's what they found. After $75,000, people were not happier. People were not more emotionally happy. And the reason that they would come along and do subsequent studies on this to find out why is that, why is that, why is it? You know, let's look at the sociological reasons behind all of that. And here's, here's what they'd essentially find. Once you make, and that's a moving, by the way, number in different people in different towns and different cultures. But here's what they found. Once you're not worrying 
about your food, your clothing, your shelter, and your transportation. Once you have those secure, making more does not make you more happy. In fact, he would go on, Paul, you know, in, in this says, here's, here's the real tragedy. He says, but those who desire to be rich, they fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, here's, here, here's why I love academia. Because they did a second study. Alongside of this, maybe in conjunction with the first study. And they said, okay, first question, are you more happy? Second question, are you more satisfied? Or do, do you feel better about what you've accomplished in life? Over 75, once your basic needs and you have security in those and stability in those and dependability in those, once you make more than that, you feel better about what you've accomplished, but you don't actually feel better. In other words, they would say, making more is simply an illusion. Making more is simply an illusion. Now, at this point, <laughs> there's, there's someone in here, and you're skeptical. And you're kind of like, you know, bubbling up at this point. You just can't wait. You know, you're thinking you've got your whole argument. You're, you're ready to just say, man, this is why you're wrong. This is why you're wrong. You say, I'm going to buy me a boat. I'm going to buy me a truck to pull it. You know, you got this other stuff. And, <laughs> and on top of that, you're thinking, see, this is why I don't like church. Because it's the most, you know, apathetic, content, lazy. You just have what you want. You don't have a try. Let me tell you, <laughs> that is the opposite of what I'm saying. I think, I think Christians ought to be the most ambitious people on planet Earth. I think we ought to be the most driven people on planet Earth. I think we ought to long for and love to run companies, run countries, run cities. I think we ought to, in every, I mean, run families. I think we ought to run schools. I think we, I think we ought to be the most ambitious people, but our ambition could come from a sense that we are a reflection of our God who did everything with excellence and did nothing halfway, not because I'm going to make more money. We clear on that? You should be driven. Like I was talking to a buddy of mine. Um, <laughs> too long ago. I probably shouldn't share this because I'm not going to do it. But I was talking to a buddy of mine. I'm like, man, like, so a couple weeks, you know, a couple months ago, we had, you know, the, all the elections and the races. And this is kind of early on in that. And I was thinking, what does the mayor do? Because I kind of, you know, <laughs> like, when does that come back open? Because like, what do I need to do to my resume to try to run for mayor in about eight to 10 years? You know, now let me tell you, I'm not going to run for mayor, or at least God willing. I, I don't want to run for mayor because I, I don't even know what the mayor does. I'm just looking at it saying like, I think we could do some good, you know, like <laughs> some of you guys are like, oh, he's getting political. Chill out, you know, grow up. <laughs> But here's all I'm saying. When it was for me, compared to when it's for God, I have so much more ambition. But the point is, is I don't need it to satisfy me. It says a couple more words that sometimes are difficult to parse out in the church world. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, not money itself. He says, when you're in love with your stuff, when you need that to be more, when you need that to be fulfilled, 
It's the root of all kinds of evil. Through its craving, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Love of money is difficult to, to see in the mirror. You know someone who's loving, in love with money, and everybody knows that because they're super greedy and nobody likes them, but we get it. And as difficult as it is to see in the mirror, I want to give us a, a brand new definition. Here's how you know that perhaps we need a heart change. A love of money comes from a lack of contentment. A love of money comes from a lack of contentment. A love of money comes from a lack of contentment because a lack of contentment says, I need more to be satisfied. And as long as you need more to be satisfied, to feel content, to feel whole, you're going to constantly need the thing that gets you the more. You're going to constantly need the thing that gets you the I need the new, I need the new house, I need the new car, I need the new shirt, I need the new shoes, I need the new you know, helicopter maybe. I don't know. You know I, need, I need this new to make me whole. He says as long as you are discontent with where you are and who you are, you will always need more. And as long as you always need more, you will always spend your time chasing the thing that gives you more, which is your money. Let me, let me talk to Christians specifically for a second. This is why I think this is so important for us. What that means is you are putting stuff, possessions, in the place that only Jesus can fill, and you will never, ever, ever be satisfied with more because more was never meant to satisfy you know what more does more doesn't satisfy more simply grows the desire for more so don't waste your life if you're a Christian be ambitious Go start the thing. Go run the thing. Go make the, the whatever. But the ambition comes from my satisfaction in God, and now I have given a new motivation that it is all for the glory of God. Let me put it this way, kind of as we're starting to close. What we believe as Christians is that we are innately sinful to the core of who we are. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And not just like, okay, you know, God is perfect and we're kind of sinful. No, like there is a, there is a gap. Gap doesn't begin to describe it. Like chasm doesn't describe it. Like, you know, there is this gigantic monumental chasm between us and God because of our sinfulness and because of his holiness of which we cannot good ourselves in the good, his good graces because we are still sinful people. And be, the, the, the reason we think we can is because we don't understand how holy he is. And God saw that. God didn't hold that against us. God didn't say, are you kidding me? I can't believe you're sinful. I can't believe you did that. I hate you. Get out of my presence, you sinner. No, he said the opposite. I see that, and I love you in spite of it. In fact, I just don't love you cerebrally. I, I, I don't love you ideologically. I love you enough to send my son into the world to perform miracles, to substantiate who he is, to die on a cross, to bridge the gap, to pay the payment to reconcile us to God. And that I now have 
On his death and resurrection, I now have the spirit of the living God living and moving and breathing inside of me. And one day, as I progress in sanctification, in other words, being more like Jesus, I will one day rise up and I will be with him in glorification. Let me tell you, if his death or resurrection, his spirit, his sanctification and one day glorification is not enough to make me satisfied, that new piece of clothing, that new car, that new house never will be. So let me ask you this. Are you content? Not are you complacent? Are you satisfied? Dave Ramsey, many of you know, is a financial guru, said this. The primary characteristic of great stewards and great managers is they're content with what they have and they don't need more to be satisfied. How much different? How much different would your thoughts be? Would your life be? How much different would your patterns be as you grow and as you make more and as you do that thing that God has called you to accomplish? How much more would you be able to get, give? How much more would you be able to help? How much more would you be able to love? And how much more would we see the kingdom of, earth, of God here on planet earth? A good friend of mine, I'll kind of end with this quote. He always talks about this. In fact, I'm pretty sure he debuted it from like Mother Teresa or something. It's a classic. <clears throat> a buddy of mine, his name's James Barnett, founded um, an organization called Clothe Your Neighbor as Yourself. Here's one of their mantras. And here's what I think we would probably live and embody if we got this. Live simply so that others may simply live. I think people would know Christians not by the jets we have and the massive buildings we meet in, but the fact that we live simply so that others can simply live. We are driven by ambition, but we are extraordinary stewards knowing that at the end of the day, I am not taking any of this with me. I am simply a manager, and God, I'm content. I got food, I got clothes, I got shelter, I got transportation, I got, even if I don't, I still have you. And you are more than enough for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray and I thank you for the fact that none of this rides or dies on what step we are and stage we are in life. God, we are simply managers. We are managers of the time that you've given us, the minds that you've given us, the education that you've given us, the opportunities that you've given us. We are simply managers of the resources, of the money. We are resources or we are managers of everything that we have. God, would you help us to not need those to be satisfied, but would you help us to simply be satisfied in you, Jesus? Because if we are, that changes everything. Would you help us daily as we go to you in prayer, as we go to you in your word, as we go to you uh, in, in meditation, as we go to you in fasting? God, would you help as we look at your face to have all the things of the world to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory because we get you, God, and that is more than enough. I pray the hallmark of our church would be a reputation of contentment, management, 
yet extraordinary ambition. That people would see that. Our friends would see that. And they would see you through it. Help us in any area, in every area, that we lack contentment to seek that only in you, Jesus. And we pray that it would transform our lives. Amen.